0: Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we welcome you as we do each week uh, at noon on Sundays right here on KTRL 90.5 FM and also streaming live, or not really live, live to tape as we like to say it, but uh, streaming on tarletonradio.com. And also you can listen to us on... Uh, SoundCloud. You can download previous episodes and listen. You can uh, download where you get your podcasts. Uh, We're available in a lot of formats, and it's good to be back on the air. We were back last week after uh, being off the air for a month, uh, and part of that was to address some other Uh, issues and things that that needed attention, but now to get back to our weekly show and to focus on very critical issues uh, at both the uh, state and federal level and occasionally local issues as well. Uh, Last week, we had the great privilege of interviewing Jane Hickey, longtime assistant of Governor Ann Richards, and listening to a little bit of her a background that she offered on working for the former governor, working for in that environment, especially as we look at the uh, legislative session and where we are and, of course, the role of the governor uh, in that as well. So, again, welcome this week. Uh, This is a show without an interview uh, this week. We'll have some coming up in the weeks ahead, Uh, but there are a lot of issues that I wanted to cover, some things I wanted to go back and pick up on, especially the debate over voting and voting security and restrictions as we see some of the challenges with terminology. Uh, also wanted to look at the and revisit uh, the challenges of uh, electrical supply, energy supply in Texas, as we did an interview back in February with Dr. Ann Eggleston and we talked about uh, what led up to the crash of the uh, electrical system in the state and of course now the news in recent days that we are having some challenges and could possibly have some uh, in the summer as well. And then also at the end of the show, we wanna look at the GOP frontrunners. So is it too early to be talking presidential politics uh, for 2024 as we look to the midterm elections in 2022? And we'll look at who may be positioning themselves uh, to, especially when we talk about dollars, where are supporters going? Where are they looking? in terms of potential candidates for the GOP nomination uh, for the 2024 presidential election. But first, I want to go to the issue of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has been in the the focus for a while now. We look back several years, the nominations uh, and appointments by President Trump, uh, the debate over the Supreme Court that entered into the presidential race, uh, especially with Uh, Trump's last appointment being as the race was moving toward the election Uh, and, of course, the back and forth between Republicans and Democrats over what had happened and what Republicans had done installing on Merrick Garland at the end of the Obama administration and saying, well, we need to wait and let the voters speak uh, and address this in a a new election uh, or election that's coming up and see who the voters determine uh, as president. Uh, so there's been a number of things focused here. And of course, most recently in the last uh, week or so has been the movement by the Biden administration uh, to appoint the commission to look at the Supreme Court and really to study this issue uh, to, uh, uh, wh- about the number of justices. Uh, so we know this debate revved up during the, the presidential election campaign. Uh, when uh, because of Trump's appointments, some in the Democratic Party started pushing and saying we need to uh, raise the number of justices. If we get control of Congress, Congress is the one designated by the Constitution to determine this. It's not set. Uh, then the consideration of looking at adding justices in order to counter uh, the Trump appointments, which if you look at this in terms of. Uh, political ideology and where the candidates fall, uh, it, uh, some would say, okay, this gives the, the, the Republicans or conservatives a 6-3 advantage on, on the court. Now, first of all, I want to point to that and say that that is, that is politicizing the Supreme Court. And we know and we have to realize that that is a factor because these are presidential appointments. Uh, but we also have to realize too that, that people appointed to the court are there until they resign or for life. Uh, they uh, are there in terms of their legacy, and they're concerned about that as well. Uh, and sometimes it surprises us the way uh, people decide on, on various issues in trying to interpret the Constitution and constitutional law. So looking back at the history of this, just to kind of catch everyone up and, and talk about this for just a moment, is that in the history of this, we're looking back and, and seeing that early on three justices a fourth is added it's not until uh, 1869 that the the number of justices as we have it today uh, was set. i'm sorry 1867 was set uh, at nine nine justices as we have have it today and it has remained at that level uh, throughout all of the time since uh, even during the attempts of, of franklin roosevelt in his second term Uh, to look at the issue of expanding the number of justices given the Supreme Court's role in striking down um, uh, many of the programs that he was proposing uh, to uh, try to bring the country out of depression, uh, to try to uh, strengthen the power of the federal government in navigating this very difficult time. Uh, Now, Roosevelt was able to accomplish some things, and this is where some think that Biden's focus may be, is that the, the move by Roosevelt at that time, even though it did not succeed in getting more seats on the Supreme Court, it did, did succeed in loosening up the Supreme Court and its view and its positioning on uh, certain Roosevelt policies that, that were able to go into effect. Uh, Some are thinking that that's a part of of Biden's uh, rationale, at least in uh, the political engagement with the role that the Supreme Court has and what may be coming to the forefront during his administration. So that is a little bit of background that helps us to engage with this this very highly politicized issue, uh, which we'll talk about that part of it in a moment. I want to bring in a couple of other factors for us to think about as well one is that polling if we want to look at this in terms of public opinion while yes a larger number of democrats uh favor adding seats to the court compared to overwhelmingly a large number of republicans uh, if you average all this out uh the consensus uh well or we'd say consensus we'd say the majority of people are not in favor. It's a slim majority, but it's enough to say, okay, this is not really a, a, as prominent an issue as maybe it's getting attention uh, by politicos and by uh, Republicans, Democrats, and so forth. Uh, so polling is not supporting this. The second thing is, is the actual makeup of the commission and, and really the power that it's been given. So if you look through uh, the several press releases from the White House, if you look through the committee appointments, if you look through the executive order appointing or creating the presidential commission on the Supreme Court, uh, there, there are some concerns here. One is that it, it is the membership of the committee, while it says that it's bipartisan, it's very heavily uh, includes uh, those that would be identified with a liberal or progressive ideology, even though it is many people who are leading constitutional scholars, uh, teaching in law schools, and, and and engaged with this with with varied experience with the federal courts and so on. So it's a, it's an impressive group of people by by far, but it's also uh, very clear that there is a an attempt to focus on where this call is coming from. And we see it within uh, some of the elements of the Democratic Party that are saying the only way uh, that we can uh, address this to to bring back balance to the Supreme Court uh, is to add seats to the court. And in saying that, I want to go to a clip uh, that I want us to to share with you. uh, That was the press conference. Uh, that was uh, offered uh, on the uh, occasion of announcing new legislation that has been proposed in Congress. Uh, You had Senator Ed Markey, you had Representative Jerry Nadler, uh, who came out and announced this new legislation that was being proposed in Congress uh, to uh, increase the number of seats on the court by four. So let's listen to this, and then we'll come back and talk about some of the other elements of
1: that. So we are here uh, as a coalition uh, beginning this effort uh, to ensure that we restore justice uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, This is uh, an incredible moment as we uh, introduce the Judiciary Act of 2021. We are here today because the United States Supreme Court is broken. It is out of balance. Uh, and it needs to be fixed. Too many Americans view our highest court in the land as a partisan political institution, not our impartial judicial branch of government. Too many Americans have lost faith in the court as a neutral arbiter of the most important constitutional and legal questions that arise in our judicial system. And I'm disappointed to say, that too many Americans question the court's legitimacy. The consequence is that the rights of all Americans, but especially uh, people of color, women in our immigrant communities are at risk. The concerns the American people have about the high court are legitimate and they are well-founded.
0: All right, so hearing from Senator Ed Markey and here hearing the the what they are offering is the justification for this uh, really highlights that call from within the democratic party of leadership who is attempting uh, to, uh, to address what happened during the Trump administration uh, with the appointment of, of judges and what they perceive to be that, that imbalance. Um, so where is this gonna go? I think that's the question now. And of course, Republicans are reacting to this very negatively in terms of court packing. There's also even some current and former justices have come out with concerns about this becoming uh, not just political, but what precedent it sets for the future. Uh, And so I think one of the things we have to look at is what authority does the commission have, which first we have to say very little. It's not even charged really in making recommendations. It's more to study the issue, which if we look back historically of these types of commissions and what they've done, it's often been a way of deflecting uh, criticism or deflecting uh, a focus on a particular issue in order to kind of kick it down the road a little bit, which Biden has already done, which he did in the general election, in the debates, when he kind of talked about saying, well, we need to study this. Uh, He wouldn't come out and say, yes, we need to increase the size of the court. Uh, So this is another way of kind of pushing it off to say, okay, let's let this commission study it for six months or so, and then we'll come back and we'll see what, what they offer uh, to determine if there's a way forward with this. Of course, six months from now uh, we're going to be past an, uh, uh, we're going to be in that midterm election cycle. Uh, what other issues, what will be relevant at that point and what will not be. Uh, this is a way of, of addressing concerns and it looks like that Biden is doing this within his party in a way to say, okay, we're going to take a look at it, but not in a way that overcommits him to actually do something. And I think one of the reasons for that, and, and we also see this, I think in the response of Nancy Pelosi that re, that said to about this legislation that's being uh, proposed, that it's not going to come to the floor. Uh, she has already come out uh, saying that, that it's, this is not going to move forward in the house. Uh, one, you have to look, it's a very close uh a margin majority that they have uh, that could change in the next election. Uh, but also I think president Biden and Nancy Pelosi speaker of the house are both institutionalists. Uh, I think they both in their careers and, and, and how this has, how that the, they have worked within government have emphasized the importance of the, the, the institutions in the way that they are and how they function Uh, and trying to really protect that in some way over against uh, the winds of of politics that change uh, with every election and that change with every issue. And so this is something that really steps across that that line and looking back at how the Supreme Court has worked. And I don't know that they fully agree with uh, Ed Markey and, and Jerry Nadler and others that this is out of balance or this is broken. They may agree, yes, well, now conservatives have a majority on the court, and this is going to impact court decisions for uh, decades to come. Uh, this is going to be a concern about uh, you know civil rights issues and other things, which, uh, again, I think there, there's some legitimacy there looking back historically at the institution. But on the other hand, I think it's, it's the, the role then of Congress and the president to engage with these issues in a substantive manner that appeals to the, 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 uh, the role that the Supreme Court has in interpreting the Constitution and, and trying to, to navigate some of these very difficult issues in the public square uh, that uh, address you know, some of the current challenges that we're facing uh, in our society that are going to come to fruition uh, through uh, the, the legal system and possibly end up uh, with the Supreme Court. So I think both Biden and, and, and Speaker Pelosi are uh, looking at this in answering the dissent, the, the, the concerns in their party in a way of giving it attention Uh, giving it significant attention to say, we need a presidential commission on this, but not in a way of, okay, we're actually going to to do something about this. We're we're actually going to seriously consider uh, whether we should expand the number of seats on the Supreme Court. I think we'll be looking at this differently six months from now. It may not even be an issue. It may not be the focus at that point. It could very well be that, that there is growing support and it's politically expedient for there to be more support put behind this. I mean, we need to go through a Supreme Court session with all of these uh, justices and see uh, where uh, decisions lie. And that, that could be a, kind of go back to what Roosevelt did. Roosevelt, basically, he, in, in trying to look at the issue of packing the court, put pressure on the Supreme Court. Uh, now, of course, we're looking at this from the outside. We're looking at it at the distance of history. But, but, but some scholars look at it and say, yes, it, it did lead to the court uh, being a little bit more open uh, to some of the policies and the directions that Roosevelt was addressing in dealing with uh, the na- national economic crisis. Uh, Biden is in his first term and possibly his only term. And is that going to be uh, sufficient? Is that is that going to apply a similar kind of pressure to the Supreme Court where uh, they don't become a lightning rod on particular issues that they see or could go maybe one way or the other? Uh, so we'll have to see. A lot of this depends on the issues that come forward. Uh, a lot of this depends on uh, politics and as this plays out. Uh, at the moment, I think the the punt of getting this to a commission will give it some initial focus and debate about court packing, and it'll be politicized, as as, as you can see, and in, in on, on both sides where people are coming out and discussing this and kind of attacking each other and so forth. Uh, that will be ongoing, but think it will lessen uh, as we look at other challenges that we're facing and other things that need to be addressed. And especially when we're talking about the Biden administration, I hope to get back as we're, you know, look at the 100 day review and we talk about uh, what's uh, been accomplished so far and what hasn't been and what issues continue to be very challenging uh, for the nation and what are very uh, highly charged political issues uh, as we look ahead. I think uh, uh, that their focus is much more on on governing through this crisis, through COVID, uh, through the economic impact, uh, through uh, getting uh, resources. Again, we will hopefully address that in the coming weeks to debate about the the growth and spending uh, in order to not only address the crisis, but also to look at uh, infrastructure plans and and things like that that the Biden administration uh, is proposing. So the Supreme Court packing a huge debate right now, very politicized on both sides, uh, will continue to be. uh, And it'll be interesting to see where we are with this uh, six months from now. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will go back to something I introduced last week. And that was Senate Bill 7 coming out of the Texas legislature and talking about voting, uh, uh, voting security, as some would say it, Whereas others are looking at this and concerned about what they say are voting restrictions. We'll be right back. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow. We're glad you're joining us today. In our first segment, we talked about uh, Supreme Court packing. And if you missed that, of course, you can catch it on SoundCloud after the show airs today. And it's an engaging issue at the moment, a topic of hot political conversation, something that may not go anywhere if we kind of read the tea leaves and uh, examine a little bit the politics of it. Uh, But now I want to turn, let's bring it back to Texas and and what I introduced last week in talking about the move in the Texas legislature to address voting. And as some of you may know from what I said last week, but uh, within uh, a few weeks ago, Senate Bill 7 uh, was passed, which would limit uh, extended voting, early voting hours, prohibit drive through voting and make it illegal for local election officials to proactively send applications to vote by mail, uh, to voters, uh, if they, even if they qualify. Okay. Some of this was is focused on some of the practices that were in place by local election officials in the 2020 election. And of course, some of this is motivated politically by what some perceive as irregularities around the nation in that election. And an attempt to address this, an attempt to to engage with constituents who are pushing their legislators to say, well, we need to do something about this. We're very much concerned about voter security, where on the other side, you have people who are looking at this and saying, well, a lot of these local uh, uh, decisions that were made to facilitate the election were within election law as set by the state. Uh, they were where local authorities do have some latitude, uh, not a significant amount, but some latitude. And they uh, encouraged help voting uh, by those who may need alternative voting schedules or longer early voting hours or uh, drive through voting or expanded voting by mail uh, because of COVID. Uh, so the debate is is raging. Of course, with our legislature being controlled by the Republican Party, this bill moved through the Senate. It's also moving through the House, and we would anticipate that there's going to be some uh, ruling on this, uh, or, or not some ruling, some decision that will come out of the legislature and go to the governor that will make these adjustments to the Texas election code. Uh, again highly politicized in a number of ways, especially since now you've had a lot of corporations, first of all, in Georgia, uh, when they passed uh, some new uh, uh, restrictions uh, uh, on voting and in order, as they were saying there, to address voter security issues. And now in Texas, where you have corporations that are coming out, uh, affirming the access to vote and really casting a light on this in a negative way that this is creating restrictions on voting, not enabling access, uh, that the focus here is to, especially in states, a non-majority state like Texas that has uh, a growing uh, a non-white population, non, we'd say non-Hispanic white, uh, I'm non sorry, we'd say Hispanic population, Latino population population, um, uh, over against the non-Hispanic white population. So the concern is uh, the access to voting, especially in urban, large urban areas that are growing uh, and the attempts to get more people to vote, as we saw with this last election with the tremendous turnout. Uh, So before we get into a few more details on this, uh, I do have a clip uh, from Lieutenant Governor uh, Dan Patrick, who has come out against the critics of this who are wanting to say that this is uh, voting, res- it's restricting voting. Uh, his focus is that we do need more voting security. We need more uniformity across the state. We need to be careful about what local officials can and can't do uh, in order not to overextend on resources to so that we can still ensure the integrity of the vote and, of course, uh, voting security. Uh, this is Governor Dan a lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick.
2: Senate Bill 7 is about voter security, not about voter suppression. And I'm tired of lies and the nest of liars who continue to repeat them. Nothing has changed in the election code regarding early voting. Nothing has changed. We have more early voting than New York or New Jersey, which proudly added nine days yesterday. So they're up to nine. Or eight states, including Delaware, the home state of the president, that do not have early voting. So if somehow we're accused of being racist because we wanna s- suppress the vote of people of color, I guess New York and New Jersey and Delaware are even more racist. Nothing has changed about election day voting in the election code. Mail-in ballots for seniors and people with disabilities has actually been loosened up under current law until must be seven passes under current law to verify a signature. You have to have two signatures dating back to six years. We've now required only one signature moving forward that can go back longer than six years because people's signatures change over time. So I wanna repeat this. Nothing has changed for mail-in ballots, election day or early voting.
0: All right. So those are the words of Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick speaking to critics of Senate Bill 7 and other legislation that's being proposed uh, where the debate is over voting restrictions or uh, voting security. And of course, the Lieutenant Governor, with many others in the legislature, are emphasizing that this is all about voter security. And really what it, it does, when you look at it in terms of the practical application of it, it is a Tightening up the options that local officials have in conducting an election. Okay, that, I think that's that's where the focus is in what uh, Dan Patrick is able to say that we're not really changing any of this, although they they are because they're they're limiting the latitude that local officials have to try to facilitate voting at the local level, uh, and, and so that's where the debate is where he's saying, no, we're not changing it. Others are pointing and say, well, yeah, yes, you really are. You're taking options off the table. Uh, there are options that are not used by all uh, counties and all election officials uh, throughout the state of Texas. And so I think the concern there, on one hand, we could say it, it is legitimate, right? Because if local election officials have these options, then uh, then they have to be able to ensure the integrity of the vote in using those options. How is that monitored? Of course, the state law is there to kind of set the boundaries for local election officials. And so the concerns over in Harris County about mailing out. Uh, ballot applications to all eligible voters uh, again how do you ensure and, and I'm not on the inside of this I served as a, um, a, a precinct worker or a voting center worker in the last election to get a little more insight into the practical side of it uh, but uh, the, the the challenge here is understanding how security is upheld within, the options that can be used by local election officials. And so I think there's a legitimacy there on the one hand. I think this has become very politicized uh, because one, it is the response of an election that it appears for the most part throughout the country uh, was conducted uh, with high integrity, uh, with high levels of security, uh, high turnout, of course. And of course, if you look back on the, the history of election laws, you know that we've constantly made adjustments. There's constantly issues and things that come up that then challenge the, the kind of boundaries that are set in place. So it's not unusual to have that. It's just that in this highly politicized and partisan environment we're in, this became politicized to the point of, well, we need to do something. Uh, because you have all these people who, no matter what the data says, no matter what state election returns said, what state officials are saying, what the Department of Homeland Security said uh, regarding this past election, something was wrong because of the, the, the outcome that happened, at least in terms of the presidential race, right? Because here in Texas, the, the Republican Party ma- maintained control of the legislature. Uh, they lost one seat in the Senate, which was expected, but it was not uh, a, any kind of swing in any way. Uh, and so a lot of this focus, uh, Trump won the, the general election in Texas uh, for president. So uh, there, there, but there's this angst, there's this concern that all these what are being claimed as irregularities. And of course, if there are irregularities, they do need to be under the purview of state legislatures to look at these and to make changes to ins- ensure voter security. Uh, and then on the other side, it's OK, well, no, you're putting more restrictions in place. You're, you, you've got a political agenda here in which you are trying to keep people from voting by restricting hours and days and times and what local election officials can do to accommodate the populations within their jurisdiction uh, in terms of of, uh, offering uh, the opportunity to vote. Uh, What's getting missed in this, and I kind of alluded to this last week and it's why I wanted to get back to it was are we really looking at the practical aspects of administering an election in this day and age, given the, 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 millions upon million, tens of millions of people that will vote around the country? Are we looking at this even at the state level in that way that says, okay, what is practical? Uh, what, what does work and doesn't work? Are we willing to kind of evaluate different options and to allow things to be done from time to time that, that, expand voter access that may be facilitate voting. I mean, the fact that we have elections on a Tuesday, I mean, is that that's why early voting has come in in many states like Texas is it's to give people the opportunity to vote on other days and at other times uh, in advance of the, of the day of the election. Uh, So I think that part of it is getting overlooked with the, the politics of this that are going back and forth. Uh, and also uh, looking at, you know, what is the evidence related to different practices that are being done at the local level that would uh, invite uh, voter fraud, okay? Does it, does it actually have to happen before we do something about it? No, uh, I would think that any new procedure process, enhancement of voter access at the local level uh, needs to have a, a, a review to see that it protects the integrity of the election. Uh, And so I think that's a critical thing here. And I think that needs more attention in this as well. Uh, But but the reaction at this point is let's take some of that that freedom away. Let's take some of that um, uh, uh, latitude, let's say, let's use that word that local election officials have uh, in order to deliver the election. And let's make sure that this is more standardized uh, throughout the state. Uh, maybe to tighten it up a little bit. Again, in Texas, it's a resource issue. Elections are very costly given the number of people that live in this state, the size of the state. And so we have to look at that as well. What what is the cost of voter security uh, in terms of the flexibility and the options that people have uh, to vote at the local level? The only thing I want to say about this uh, in, in in closing on this issue uh, is the aspect of corporations now kind of weighing in on this and, and many of them in a general way of affirming voting access. Um, th- this is something that's not uncommon in our politics, right? That corporations, companies weigh in on various issues. Uh, and, and, and we saw this in Texas. We've seen this with the tra- transgender bathroom issue with, uh, various uh, 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 venues. Uh, we've seen this on other issues as well, where corporations try to, to, to use their weight a little bit and their influence, which they do in other areas as well. We can look at it in Texas in terms of taxation and the economic benefits of, of stimulus resources and uh, uh, grants that the state provides to encourage business growth and, and so forth. Uh, but but here is an issue uh, that, that has long been in the purview of state legislatures, of course, as well as the federal courts. And if we look back, and of course, federal legislation, Voting Rights Act, and, and, and other uh, major pieces of legislation that have expanded the right to vote uh, over time. Uh, I think, again, that, that element of corporations, companies kind of weighing in on this adds to the politicization of it. Yes, we're all about, and we should all be, whether whatever side of the aisle anyone is on, we should be about voter access, but voter access with uh, security and, and the integrity of the election emphasized as well. And I think that's where we have some challenges here is that when corporations weigh in like that, uh, they're, they, they should be weighing in to ask the legislature to do their job right to to as as companies as employers uh, as CEOs who are members of the society and so forth that have vested business interest and are concerned certainly about equality the emphasis here is on the the, the on government doing its job to manage this properly uh, not to politicize it on a plane that ignores kind of the practical elements of it. And, and for me, I think there's a lot of practical aspects here of how we do elections uh, that are that are just not the focus. Uh, I think there's some of it in the legislation, but I think that's being really overlooked and not being uh, uh, championed enough. And, and part of that is then, well, let's take our side, let's take what aligns with our political agenda, let's get out there in the media and the public, and let's push this forward uh, so that we can gain support for our side and why this is wrong and this is right, or we should do it this way and not that way. Uh, so uh, that that concerns me as well, even though we know that goes on in politics, it, it, it will, it has, it will continue uh, to be that way but it, it doesn't seem as, as productive a focus uh, in terms of the responsibility that the state has to deliver a fair and free election and voting access uh, to the people. Um, what that should be about is how can corporations, how can businesses and business leaders uh, encourage the legislature to, to do its job in looking at this thoroughly, uh, but then also on the other side of it uh, that they are offering uh, solutions and options, and there's ways to help lawmakers look at this in terms of delivering uh, uh, elections that, are, uh, that, that have the highest level of integrity and security. So we'll give this more attention as it moves to the Texas legislature. Uh, it looks like that it'll probably pass the House, that it will be uh, the, the bill will go to uh, uh, a joint uh, a committee, in preparation for a final version that would go back through both chambers and then, of course, on to uh, the governor and most likely will be passed. Again, putting in more standardization and some restrictions on what local officials can do in upcoming elections. Uh, We're going to take another quick break and we will come back for our last two segments. And that's a look back at the energy crisis that we had earlier this year and what may be in store for us going ahead unless some of this is fixed. And then also talking very briefly about some of the front runners, at least in terms of fundraising for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. We'll be right back.
1: Tea for
2: Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get
1: your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we're glad you're joining us today. This is one of those catch-all shows where we're trying to bring you up to date on a few issues and look at some things that need to be in front of you uh, in the world of politics and policy. Uh, Of course, today we focused on packing the Supreme Court. We have focused on voting restrictions or voting security in Texas, uh, depending on how uh, you look at that issue, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, and now we turn to, in the last part of this show, I've got two issues that I want to deal with, one in Texas and one on the national level. Uh, but first of all, this past week, uh, Texans were asked to conserve electricity because the supply of power could barely keep up with demand. Uh, and wow, this raises concerns, right? Especially when we're looking at summer uh, just around the corner. And we know that in Texas that summer can be hot, it can be dry, uh, it can be uh, not much wind to help cool us off. And so what does this mean going forward and what are the issues? Well, a part of this uh, concern uh, was due to uh, power plants that have been offline due to maintenance um, and some of this being the result of the winter storm we had, which created that massive failure across the state in our electrical power grid. Uh, if you were with us on in February, uh, the, our episode that aired on February 28th, we interviewed Dr. Ann Eggleston, uh, the director of the Center for Environmental Studies here at Tarleton State University. And we talked about how this is set up and and Texas having its own grid and what really led to these extreme temperatures that caused the failures because uh, the electrical providers were not prepared uh, for that type of weather for an extended period of time. And thus this this collapse uh, of the energy grid uh, in the state. So with that fresh in our minds and just having happened, Uh, A few months ago, now we are hearing, okay, conserve. Uh, Our grid can barely keep up. Well, okay, one part of this is the damage that was caused and the need to get things fully back operational, repaired, uh, in order to handle the demand uh, in Texas. But there is some concern about the summer uh, in the state, uh, especially that severe weather uh, could cause, and we're talking about extreme weather here, hot uh, 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 weather, severe drought, uh, low winds, uh, so those turbine wind turbines uh, don't turn, uh, could lead to more uh, power outages, and so this is being looked at now, certainly by the Texas legislature, as they look at what is need what needs to be done to bring the um, uh, the grid up to operations in, that will meet the demand, the growing demand in this state that continues uh, to um, uh, uh, have population growth and business growth that then needs more power. But there are a couple of, of uh, scenarios here that have come out from ERCOT, if you remember ERCOT, which is uh, the Reliability Council that, that manages this on behalf of the state. And there are three scenarios that are possible for this summer and that they're attempting to look at to say, okay, what what would be the outcome here? So the first scenario involves drought, similar to what the state saw in 2011, combined with low winds, several natural gas plants offline, and an increase in economic activity as the pandemic eases could leave the power grid short by 3 3,600 megawatts or enough to power 720,000 homes. Okay, so that, that definitely has an impact when you're talking about that many homes uh, that could be, it could be possible. Uh, the second, add low solar power generation to that first projection, so a cloudy day, and the grid would be short 7,500 megawatts or enough to power 1.5 million homes. Okay, that number just doubled, right? number of homes that are not powered because of low wind, low solar, uh, with a few other plants offline due to uh, the, either the damages or in the way that they rotate and, and, and manage all of this. The most extreme scenario that is being looked at by ERCOT is a severe heat wave across the entire state combined with outages for every major power source would leave the grid short 14,000 megawatts were enough to power 2.8 million homes. Okay. So this gets to that more severe case and they're looking at these scenarios to say, okay, how do we address and overcome them? So what happened this past week is that Texas's grid supply and demand and the balance of it uh, fell below the safety margin of 2,300 megawatts in excess supply. Okay. So the grid was producing Excess, which it always does, and that excess is there as a as a uh, precaution. That came down uh, to the the level that they say, wait a minute, this is not going in the right direction, and thus additional precautions uh, are, are kick in according to ERCOT policy uh, and how they manage this so that they don't have uh, the massive failure that we saw uh, earlier uh, in the year. Uh, so there are debates going on what about these scenarios. Uh, what is the chance of them occurring? Uh, of course, we look back in February at what happened. Uh, of course, that was not expected uh, and it, it happened, and we, we, we weren't prepared. It's very clear uh, that we weren't prepared uh, for the results of it and uh, what uh, caused the, the, that catastrophic event uh, that left so many people without power, many, many for days. Uh, the ERCOT will be coming out with a final summer assessment. Uh, in May by May sixth, uh, that will then include these scenarios, and we'll look at what recommendations and options that they have in the state uh, in order to uh, address the possibility of these uh, things happening. Uh, so it's 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 something that we all need, I think, to be aware of. We need to be aware of the role government has. I think we focused on this back with our interview with uh, Dr. Eggleston, where we talked about the legislature, uh, the governor. Uh, the role that ERCOT has uh, with the uh, in, in managing this and how uh, how government should be addressing such a, the cr- a critical need. I mean, the fact that we're so dependent on electrical power uh, and there are so many uh, things, businesses as well, in terms of their operations, uh, gas stations um, and our homes of course and of course certainly our medical facilities and of course some of these things have uh, backup resources but those are not meant for an extended period of time they're meant to get through a very short crises to then provide whatever services uh, that are being that need to be maintained for the health and well-being so we'll look at this it, it, right now. These scenarios are, are, are not as likely because some of the projections from the, uh, NOAA and from other weather sources, uh, are looking ahead and saying that, uh, we will have above average temperatures. Uh, but, uh, is it going to be a heat wave? Is it going to be drought? Is it going to be uh, low wind? I think based on what we experienced in February, uh, we need to be prepared uh, for all of these things. Now in this last segment of the show today, I want to turn to the presidential race for 2024. And we may be going, wow, we just finished an election. Uh, We have an an administration that's nearing its its 100 days in office. Uh, Why start looking ahead? Well, it's because in the world of politics, that race never really ends. We get a pause occasionally after various elections, uh, but the race itself never really ends. And of course, with the loss of President Donald Trump in the election, m- people began positioning themselves. And we've seen that, uh, and I wanted to bring to our attention uh, several people, uh, and some of these names will be familiar, uh, but they are people who are out in front and are fundraising and are positioning themselves. One that has come to uh, the, the the forefront in recent weeks is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, who has begun um, raising uh, funds and and really having people come to him and and organizations come to him uh, that have resources and are looking at him as, uh, in fact, I saw a political article said that a nicer version of Donald Trump. Um, He's being looked at along with uh, former Vice President uh, Mike Pence, who has, is, is out there, uh, but does he have the ability to draw uh, the kinds of resources that some of these other uh, candidates, now potential candidates. So there, as the Republican Party looks at this going forward, uh, national donor interest, as, as several articles have pointed out, is very, very much interested in Governor DeSantis, um, they're, they're lining up to support his reelection effort in 2022, uh, which would be a good opportunity for him to be on not just the state, but national stage, uh, and then to position himself for 2024. We've seen the, in interviews that have been conducted among contributors and fundraisers in the Republican Party that uh, this focus is, is shifting to DeSantis and looking at him, uh, not just because of, his, because of Florida. Uh, but uh, by many throughout the country, as having him having a major political future uh, in the Republican Party. So, DeSantis, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who will be up for re-election in 2022, is a prominent name in the field. A couple of other names uh, that may seem a little more familiar if you followed the show and you followed the election politics, and that is Texas Senator. Ted Cruz and Missouri Senator uh, Josh Hawley both of these uh, had their names out there and have been vying for position within the party uh, especially since the election uh, but they they are already as we see from the numbers are leading the pack in first quarter contributions Cruz brought in 3.6 million to his Senate re-election committee which has reported having 5.6 million in cash on hand. Holly has 3 million in receipts with 3.1 million on hand. Now, why okay, why is that important? Neither one of these senators are up for re-election until 2024. And so already they have uh, outpaced uh, many, many others in terms of fundraising for their re-election, which of course could be channeled into a presidential bid. Um Close behind are a few other names that might sound familiar. Uh, Senator Rand Paul and Marco Rubio. uh, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. Marco Rubio from Florida. Paul has raised $1.9 million and has $3.1 million on hand. Rubio reported $1.6 million in the first quarter with $3.9 million uh, in cash on on hand. Uh, So, again, you have two people and, and some of the politics of this are people looking at, well, did they vote to overturn the election or not? Uh, Paul and, and Rubio did not, of course, Cruz and, and Holly did. Uh, so they certainly are favorites among, uh, Trump followers. Uh, but Rubio and Paul are, are in the mix as well. And we, 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 th- if we look at this early on in this process, these are, I think, the net, some of the names to watch. Now, we are so far out from a presidential election, or at least from the beginning of the, the primary process in the year leading up to the election, that there could be a whole host of other names uh, of people who come forward and who rise to the top through the midterm elections, through whatever uh, crisis or policy issues that are addressed on the national level. Uh, there is still plenty of time. Uh, but it is interesting to look at some of these and depending on their relationship or alignment with the Trump administration uh, and where they may be in terms of their ability to raise money. Again, this is going to be uh, a focus, as it is in every presidential election, and that is resources. How do you raise the, the, the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that are needed uh, in order to, to fund a campaign? Uh, now we saw a little unconventional approach with president Trump and his, uh, campaigns. Uh, but we, are, are, we, we will certainly be back, I think, to seeing uh, the need for those resources. So this is an area that we'll track. We'll be looking at those names as they come forward. We'll be watching uh, to see, especially on the Democrat side, because Biden uh, had said about being a one-term president, is that mean they're going to be front runners moving forward as we move further through his administration. Uh, but those are the things that you can uh, listen to on politics and learn more about each week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. We thank you for joining us this week. Uh, Be sure to follow our Facebook page. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow uh, for related articles, news, and information. And you can also listen to previous sessions of the show uh, on SoundCloud. Again, thank you for joining us for this episode of On Politics.
2: a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch and me,
1: Carissa Cole Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts